Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 6th, 2020, and my guest is economist, political theorist, and author, Michael Munger of Duke University. I want to thank Plantronics for supplying the Blackwire 5220 headset for today's guest. Mike was last here on the program in February of 2019 discussing crony capitalism. If I have counted correctly, this is his 37th appearance on EconTalk, which is, of course, the career record for most appearances by a guest. A record like, I would, you could pick a lot of them, but I'm going with Cy Young's Cy Young. career sure. victories. Five, it's clearly Cy Young. 511, record that will never be broken. Uh, you could go with Cal Ripken's consecutive game streak. A lot of people think that's never be broken, but I think the 511 is safe as is the Mike Munger 37 appearances, even if he never appears again, which would be an outrage. He will appear again, I I hope and suspect. This is also the 750th episode of Econ Talk, which we started back in 2006, which boggles my mind. Uh, Mike, welcome back to Econ Talk. It is a pleasure to be back on Econ Talk, and it is an honor to be the 750th show. Uh, when you first started this in 2006, I, well, there's a number of things I wouldn't have predicted, but that's one. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, before Mike and I begin, I want to apologize. <clears throat> I want to apologize to listeners for failing to share the top 10 episodes of 2019 which uh, you voted for in our end-of-year survey, conducted probably, I suspect, around January and February, but for a variety of reasons, some of which I'll explain, that list uh, got delayed. But here are the top 10. Uh, the 10th uh, episode, number 10, Chris Arnardi on Dignity. Number 9, Rory Sutherland on Alchemy. Number 8, Alain Berteau on Cities Planning and Order Without Design. Number 7, David Epstein on Range. Number six, Bjorn Lomborg on the costs and benefits of attacking climate change. Number five, Andrew McAfee on more from less. Number four, Tyler Cowen on big business. Number three, Michael Munger on crony capitalism. Number two, George Will on the conservative sensibility. And the number one episode, as voted by you, the listeners, uh, for 2019 is was Keith Smith. On free market health care, which 40% of you put in your top five, which might be a record. Uh, honorable mentions, uh, two episodes that made the top 10 for voters who listened to every episode, special category. Uh, Stephen Kotkin on Solzhenitsyn and Gary Greenberg on the placebo effect. They would have been in the top 10 if we had limited the voting to those people. Now, why the delay? The simple answer is that while I, too, loved the Keith Smith episode, and there were Many, many things about that episode I found fascinating. He made some claims about the impact of government subsidies to hospitals that provide uncompensated care, or what's called uncompensated care. I wanted to verify his claim that hospitals have an incentive to charge a higher list price in order to recoup more government money for that uncompensated care. And I thought, well, I'll just look into this, find out if it's true or not. Well, it turned out to be quite complicated. Uh, I can't verify the claim. But I'm not saying it's not true. I, I think there's something there, uh, but I haven't been able to verify that, it, that it's true. So uh, I expect we'll continue to look at this. What I've learned from that uh, attempt to verify the claim is that hospital pricing is even more complicated than I can imagine. People who've tried to explain it to me have struggled to do so. Uh, what I think is true is that there is some very funky stuff going on on how hospitals do their accounting how Medicare and Medicaid subsidies interact with that pricing. We did an episode with Marty McCary exploring some of the very unattractive, non-transparent and uh, cartel-like aspects of the pricing problem. And we also did some conversation on that with Vivian Lee in a recent episode. I hope to continue to look at this issue uh, and the issue of hospital pricing more generally. And it's going to be very interesting to see the impact of the executive order requiring pricing transparency that's supposed to happen at the end of this year. Um, 
I'd also like to reflect for a minute on EconTalk's 750th episode, uh, perhaps because of the death of my father uh, in March or the pandemic, uh, which I think uh, has caused a lot of us to be reflective in many ways. But because of those things, a number of you reached out to tell me what EconTalk means to you. Uh, it's been a great intellectual journey for me, and I'm so grateful to Liberty Fund for the support of this podcast and to you out there for listening caring and sharing uh, what you get out of the program. It's um, incredibly gratifying. I'm, I feel very blessed and very lucky, and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And I want to thank today's guest, Mike Munger, who's been an important part of Econ Talk as a frequent guest from the very beginning. Mike, I've learned so much from you, and I so appreciate the time and energy and knowledge and preparation that you've given as a guest in all 36 of the previous episodes. Today's who knows? We'll find out. Yeah, it could go badly. Yeah, it really, well, <laughs> probably will. Our topic is the present and future of universities. Uh, we're in the middle of the COVID pandemic. Uh, Mike, what is your, what are some of your takeaways? What have we learned as a lot of education has gone online and has become virtual and it's still unclear what's going to happen at universities this fall? I think what's interesting about the current situation is that it does make us think what is the nature of the university? What are the essential features of the university? And when we ask, will university survive, then we have to say, what is it about the university that should survive and what might not? So yesterday, I went and listened to two uh, podcasts from Econ Talk in 2014 by Daphne Collar and uh, John Cochran, both of whom at the time had been working with Coursera, and both of them independently. An online learning platform. Yeah. Each of them independently uh, made the analogy to Gutenberg and the printing press because the claim was playwrights or uh, people who gave lectures wouldn't survive the printed word. Uh, I remember a bit when baseball teams were worried about televising games because sure. people would stop coming. And so it is interesting to think about Coursera certainly has not really made inroads against traditional classes. No. The question is, and the two questions that I wrote a piece for the American Institute of Economic Research, that the two things that it kind of motivated me were, first, what is it that is the essential feature of universities? And professors, I have bad news. It's not classes. <laughs> because it, it's, it's actually quite true that something like education can be done, I don't know better, but well and cheaper by online or remote or some sort of recorded training. And the second thing is that that, that may mean that universities are going to shrink in number and that the way that education is delivered is going to change. But again, listening to those two podcasts in 2014, I was struck by a point that you made, Russ, to both of the uh, both of your guests, and that was the comparison that we often make is a really great professor or a video. And a really great professor in person is better than a video. That's not the relevant comparison for way more than half, maybe 75% of students. The comparison is maybe I can't get to college at all because it's expensive or I live in the middle of nowhere. Or if I can, I'm going to a place where the professors are not that motivated and the classes are really large. And so having a video from a really great professor may be better than the alternative. So the, the, one, of the, one of the questions of economics is always compared to what? And so if you're saying is a, a video version of a really good course that's well produced and well thought out, is that better than the alternative that that person has available to them? We might very well want to leave that up to them. The other thing that I wanted to get out at the beginning was universities have in some ways come a long way and not very far. So universities started really in Italy in the 13th and 14th centuries, and they were focused on humanism. They were an investment to try to make uh, better members of the church, better leaders, and it, they were explicitly humanistic. Then in the 
a little bit in the 18th century, mostly in the 19th century. At the end, we see a shift in Germany, the origin of the modern university, to what they called Wissenschaft. And I was surprised. I taught in Germany in 2009. We actually did one one uh, econ talk from there yeah. while I while I was in shopping Ireland. cart episode. A lot of yes. people call that the, the one of my favorite and <laughs> least favorite. I still wake up screaming thinking about the shopping cart episode. Uh, but the the notion of Wissenschaft is something that still of science still pervades the German university and it's not science. It, it me it's the same word. So if you were to say, what does, what is the word science in, in German? It's Wissenschaft, but political science, political theory, they're focused on, it's a scientific undertaking. So we might call it social theory. And so the university of Chicago had a committee on social theory that social thought. Formally, social thought yeah. that that yeah. comes directly from the German conception of what it is that we should be doing. So economics, political philosophy, all of those things are part of a larger social theory. So that's the origin of universities. The United States takes that and then does something else with it. And we divide into different groups. And there's something to be said for division of labor. But the question is, have universities lost sight of the function of, and I don't, I don't know if we should call it education or training or the inculcations of students into the life of the mind, into the sense that, and this is an experience that I had when I first went to Davidson College in 1976. I grew up on a rural farm, an orange farm. My high school was terrible. I got to Davidson and I felt like I was in a different world. And I was able to get in in spite of the fact that I had bad grades in high school and that we were really poor. My father didn't graduate from high school. And that, in large, in large measure, that doesn't really happen anymore. So another thing to think about universities is not just what's being offered, but what sort of people are able to take advantage of universities. And uh, Angus Deaton has a very recent book about the the problem of the BA divide, the difference between having a college degree and not having a college degree. So all of those are issues that I wanted to put on the table. What are universities? What should they be? What sort of people are going to universities? And should universities try to preserve and try to get rid of some things that are just not that important? There's a lot there, and there's other stuff I want to hope we can get into. Um, I want to start with a, a a general issue that you allude to, which is what is the purpose of of the university educationally? It can have more than one purpose, obviously. Uh, that humanistic ideal of I, I like to think of it as teaching people how to think, right? And you do that through conversation, lecture, Socratic dialogue, writing, uh, a lot of different aspects of helping people absorb and process and learn to connect things they've learned to other things. It's all the process of, of education at large, but I would call it learning how to think. That's a very broad, general goal. Uh, it's a little bit romanticized in my mind, to be honest. Uh, there's a second goal, which I think has become more common, was more common a few years ago in American universities, which was to prepare people for the job market. And of course, learning how to think, it's related to being prepared for the job market, but it's a lot of times uh, become subsidiary to what we would call training, what you call alluded to training. It would be uh, a degree in business. You learn about what accounting is. Accounting helps you think a little bit too, by the way, but it's not its main purpose. It's to give, help you acquire a formal skill. It could be computer science. It could be engineering that you're going to then apply in, in the labor market and it involves something that ideally we would call mastery. So a great university in the first example would be a great pl a place where you are exposed to extraordinary ideas and you learn how to think. The second would be you're exposed to a set of tools that you acquire and demonstrate mastery of and are certified. And that helps you get, get a job. The third uh, aspect of, of education, uh, I called in a recent aspect, I'm talking about American University College life. I called in the recent episode with Agnes Callard, finishing school. It's a year, it's a set of years where you explore, 
your identity, what's important to you, what you care about, what you're interested in. Agnes corrected me and said, well, it's more like starting school, not finishing school. But that's really my first example of, of, quote, learning how to think or being exposed to great ideas. And I think those three uh, models uh, are in varying degrees available on the landscape of American universities. The first one's really only available formally at a, at a handful of places, uh, St. John's College being the most prominent, where you read the great books, the great ideas in, in concert with other people, core curriculum, uh, in concert with your, with your peers. The second one, the mastery of skills, is for a small group of people on an American campus, unfortunately, in my view, or not, but it is a small group who, who acquire mastery of a set of tools. I would say in America today, it's that third aspect of education, the finishing school, exploring, figuring out thing, that is increasingly important to the people who who come to college. And I say that all in response to your point, because what we've learned in the last few months in the middle of the pandemic is that uh, you can deliver some of that virtually pretty well. Uh, and some of it you can't deliver at all. Um, and so uh, how does that, and, and footnote, you made the nice observation that people still want to go to a baseball game rather than watch it on TV. Uh, watching on TV is cheap, close to free, out of pocket. Uh, attending in person is not cheap. Attending college in person, very not cheap. So what we're going to be talking about over the course of this uh, hour, I hope, is the potential for unbundling some of the things that people are getting in, in the university. And you're skeptical about that potential. I want to push back a little bit, try some other some other things. But why don't you react to my, those three, uh, that classification? Well, I, I was really struck uh, by you calling it finishing school in reaction to Professor Callard's uh, because I often think of it exactly that way, and I the the joke is that uh, you have to continue to go to college until you learn how to not be a jerk. <laughs> and I I'm still in college. I've, I've been uh, at well. university since <laughs> 1976. So yeah. some people, you know, an undergraduate degree might be enough. Some have to go to <laughs> graduate school, but so it literally finishing school in the sense that you, there's a degree of polish and self presentation, and obviously adulthood. Yeah. There's some some kind of level of maturity and responsibility, and I don't know that universities teach that, but it might be something you go to universities to acquire, yeah. which is a different thing. And so I think that it is interesting to talk about unbundling, but the thesis of my essay is precisely that the reduced transactions cost of the bundle are the reasons why some bricks-and-mortar universities will survive, although I think most will not. And so the, the fact that we observe in New York City in an area of a few blocks, you don't have to walk very far to go from a movie theater to live performances on Broadway. And I probably won't do both of those in the same day, but I might do both of them in the same week. For sure. So those two things exist side-by-side side in equilibrium. The problem with universities is that it's hard to do it a la carte. So not just unbundling, but I can't say, well, I'm going to go to a university and take just one class. And that may change, that universities may offer things, the bundle, offer the bundle more a la carte, where I can get this experience of being at the university and participating in a number of these things. So the the, the, the problem of finishing school is that it is exclusive, but the benefit of the finishing school is that it's exclusive. One of the reasons people are willing to pay for it, and this is Brian Kaplan's thesis about sure. signaling. I think Brian is a little skeptical about the value of the signaling because he's saying, you know, classes are not that great. Well, that's right, but there's other aspects to the finishing school that are in addition to classes. In some ways, classes are the easiest thing to replicate. And uh, this, again, is bad news for professors. Uh, starting in March, when I had to do all of my classes remotely, it happened that I had some 
things that I was already able to do. I've always used videos. Uh, I had a lot of video equipment. I could edit. I could edit videos. So this wasn't very hard for me. For many of my colleagues, they had absolutely no idea how even to get started. Yeah. And their classes mostly were they would say, "Well, do a group assignment and turn it in at the end of the semester, and I'll meet you for office hours." Unsurprisingly, some people, I don't mean to single out Duke, but some students said, I'd like a refund of tuition, please, because I am not on campus. I don't have access to the other students, and this is not the class that I signed up for. It's a reasonable point. Well, (laughs) even if you can say we can't give a refund because in the spring we weren't planning for this, the question is what's going to happen in the fall? And the longer-term question is are people going to continue to what in effect has become close to a rent-seeking contest where they're willing – some in many cases eager, as we saw with their recent scandals, people are willing to pay far more than it costs just in terms of tuition. And the tuitions are outrageous. Yeah. The, the tuitions are gigantic, 60, 70, yeah. That wasn't high thousand. enough for you? Yeah. Yes. Well, there, there, there are people willing to pay three times that. So yeah. there's something about the bricks and mortar university, which at least until recently was worth three times the already very high. So in terms of consumer surplus, universities are producing something or a lot of parents think they are. Yeah, I, I want to I talk about this issue, though, of, of in-person versus virtual uh, substitutes. Um, and, you know, we've t- it's funny you mentioned Broadway. The third variant, you say people go to a movie. They'll also go to Broadway, which is a live thing. They'll also go home and, and watch a movie on Netflix or a piece of a movie or film clips on YouTube. So that we've got this whole menu right now of we visual watched, entertainment. We actually watched Hamilton last night yeah. on, on, on Disney Plus. And I know but, you, went, you went in person. Yeah, I've seen it twice and I, and I haven't seen it yet on Disney Plus. But that, your point about movies versus uh, face-to-face Broadway, obviously, uh, I, I thought about Hamilton immediately while you were talking about it. Uh, you could argue it's better uh, in video especially when you don't when it's filmed to be put on video as they did for this performance and uh, when you a lot of times your seat might be not as good as the one that the camera can give you but i want to make a case for face to face now and, and get your reaction so i made the point before before that most film versions of musicals are not very good relative to uh live something happens live that's different and when i think back to the great the classes that were the, the college course classes that were transformative for me uh, or what I was trying to do in my classes when I was teaching in the classroom, and I'm sure what you try to do in the classroom, it, it's so much more than just accumulating information. It's so much more than than reading a book. It's a different thing. Uh, you know, just to take a version of this, you, if I give a lecture online, I give a lecture person, I give a lecture online where you watch a video of me. I can write out the text of the lecture, and you can read it, which seems to be the most efficient. But we know that's not always true. Part of the reason is people hear information and trans and, and absorb it differently than when they read it. But the other thing that happens is there's something magical about attention that that I think is underappreciated. And I think what I've had trouble with as an attendee of Zoom online lectures is paying attention in a way that I don't have a problem when I'm in pr- the presence of someone. Now, you and I have had 37-plus hours of conversation over the last 14 years, and that conversation took place with effectively my eyes closed. Those were all audio only until today. Today is our first video conversation. We've had conversations face-to-face, yeah. of course. Not, not so many. We don't live in the same place. or not in the same faculty. But something powerful happened. What I learned from you over those 30 Six plus hours and now 37 hours is, is something that happens in the brain we, we don't fully understand. And it's not obvious to me. In fact, it's the opposite. It's obvious to me that that isn't going to be very well substituted all the time for, in Zoom. And in particular, that face-to-face thing has a, uh, a, an, an alchemy to it, a, a, a real chemistry. And, and, uh, and when I think back on the – I started to say, when I think back on the great classes I had – as an undergraduate, the handful that stuck with me that that I still re- recognize as changing my way of looking at the world. Is, I it can't creepy? Am- is it creepy that I know one of those is Faulkner and Conrad? 
<laughs> that's a little creepy. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Uh, uh, yeah, that's you could talk about that if you want. But but my point is is that um, it was Professor Patterson, I think, but at UNC. But the but the point is is that I. I don't think I would have had those experiences if I just watched lectures online, even with breakout rooms and all that. So I just think I think there's something fundamental here. Now, whether it's worth paying fifty thousand dollars a year, that's that's a different question. It might be that that value added is not worth it. But react to that general point. But you're you're absolutely right. And at its best, there is something about a professor who is working hard to engage a relatively small group of highly motivated students yeah, because it, it doesn't change what you think. It changes how you think it, it teaches you how to think partly because you can model what's been done, but also mm-hmm. uh, a person's mind once stretched by an idea never shrinks back to its original dimension. It, it makes a difference yeah. that you, that you have thought in those ways. So I, I would say two things in response. One is that's still going to be worth something. I had one son go to Duke and one go to UNC. I've taught at both places. You, of course, went to University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And, and I wouldn't be caught dead at Duke, just, just for the record. Yeah. <laughs> it's a fine place. Go ahead. For, yeah, for, for what it is. Um, I, because of the fact that I am a Duke professor, was insulated from the cost difference between, because I, I live in North Carolina, yeah. the, the in-state tuition at UNC was $6,000 a year. Tuition and fees at Duke would normally be $70,000 a year. So I'm willing to say that a Jaguar is an excellent car, but it happens that I don't own one. I'm pretty sure that students can have a transformative experience in a sort of class. The question, the sort of class that you had at UNC and that people are still going to have at UNC. The way of course we, it's subsidized, so it's not the, the six thousand is not quite the yeah. right. The way we ration that now is something that is actually pretty upsetting. So in state at UNC is six thousand dollars, even for very wealthy people. Yeah. And if you look, UNC now is something that it didn't used to be. UNC, the student body now is relatively wealthy, upper-class people from North Carolina and extremely upper-class people from out-of-state yeah. because the out-of-state tuition is still relatively low. So the, I wanted to, to make a point that, that at the outset that you have often made, you have to look at the shadow costs of this. So one of yeah. the effects of a high minimum wage is that other things are going to be extracted out of workers because the boss abuses them. It's harder to get the job. Less training. You can't afford to quit. The universities, if we talk about cost, the cost is not tuition. The cost is what is required in order to get admission. And if you have a university that has the sort of classes that you're talking about, most people are not going going to be able to afford it, even if tuition is free. Because they're not, you're saying because they won't, they won't be able to to do the kind of things that get you into the queue. Absolutely, it, it's an elite it, ahead of the queue. It's ahead yes. of the queue, yeah. You have to be the very top five percent, and even if tuition is free, wealthy people are going to be able to target the things that proxy for that. And so, one of the reasons that I was able to go to Davidson College, which is a relatively elite place, it made a big difference for me. People only know it because of Stephen Curry. And but, Mike Munger, yeah. Well, <laughs> but it, 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 I went from a high school that was not very good to studying the classics of humanities. And within two years, I was a different person. One reason I was able to do that was because of standardized tests. Yeah. Because that I didn't do very well in high school, I didn't have any AP, any AP classes, but standardized tests allowed me to, to compete. Right now, standardized tests are necessary but not sufficient. You have to have a bunch of other things. And part of the reason is universities are not charging too much. They're charging too little. Yeah. So th- there's something about the value of bricks and mortar universities that at least in terms of perception of su- consumer surplus has gone up dramatically. And I wonder if maybe we have misperceived that, that it has become a kind of bubble. People have asked whether university tuitions have become a kind of bubble. Yeah. And I wonder if this is going to break that. And the unbundling that you mentioned earlier on, 
if we could, and so perhaps we should talk about the actual functions that are bundled in universities, what is it that makes that package of a bricks-and-mortar elite university, and I would include both UNC and Duke in that, one of them charges a lot for it and the other charges implicitly in rent-seeking, but both of them charge a lot to be at the top of the queue. What is it that makes those things so valuable, and is some of that value artificial, or is it something that we can share? Because one of the advantages of having a movie or a video or something where yeah. many people can take advantage of it is that zero marginal cost condition. So the it's fantastic example. It may be artificial. Well, that's the Hamilton. Uh, the Hamilton thing makes you see that uh, every, I guess it's uh, five, six times a week on Broadway when Broadway was open. Uh, Two thousand people sat in the dark together and had this incredible shared experience. And you point out in your essay the value of the shared experience is special. It's not just the same as watching it on TV, but or on a screen. But millions of people were able to see it uh, Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday, uh, which is glorious. And it and instead of costing uh, three hundred, two hundred, six hundred dollars, which is out of reach for most people, even if the theater was bigger. Or if the theater is bigger, it might be a little cheaper. But now the theater called online allows millions of people to watch it for I think seven ninety nine for that first month on Disney Plus. So um, it's a totally, uh, totally, totally different thing. You said your life changed in those first two years at, at Davidson. Uh, you are an unusual person. You, in, in many ways, Mike, as we know. But I meant in particular, not all of the good. I not understand. all of the good. Absolutely not. <laughs> But one of the ways you're unusual is that uh, I would say you're in the top half a percent of economists who've read John Locke, uh, who've read Aristotle. So you actually are what might be called, I can't fully verify this, but you might be, it'd be tempting to call you an educated person. And some of that presumably came from Davidson, where you said that those two years reading classics, you're just, I've become increasingly interested in this the power of very old books <laughs> that have stood the test of time and that people still talk about. No, that's not in fashion anymore. Forget the, the political aspects of uh, who wrote those books, but just in general, it's like, why would you waste your time reading all those old people who they're not, a, uh, that's all been superseded. Why would you read those things? Could you just reflect on how you think that's affected your, you know, we're, we're talking in this grandiose way, how to think, how do you think that affected your ability to think? Well, I, I also majored in math, and so the, it, it made a big difference that I was able both to work in math and on classics, and being at a place like Davidson with such small classes, and frankly with professors, because I wasn't very good at math, with professors who took some responsibility for making sure that I didn't fail and got me up to the point where I actually could accomplish something, that made a big difference. And that sort of hand-holding is not something you're going to get if you, you take the first calculus class, even at UNC or Michigan, the, that, no. you know, you, you, there, 300 people certain, if, if you're lucky and they're not all of them are going to go to the next course and so they've got to get rid of a whole bunch of those and so the the fact that I was able to have professors that took responsibility that perceived my failure as their failure rather than just being <laughs> uh, we, we keep track of who's good enough and and who is not where the, it wasn't just certification this yeah. was an attempt to educate but yes it's true that I'm interested in studying the classics, and I think that even in economics, we can do that. But I should point out that I never successfully got a job at an economics department. So in many ways, I'm a failed economist. <laughs> I tried for a long time to get a job at an economics department. My, ter my first tenure-track job was at the University of Texas in political science. And so I'm really glad that that worked out that way. I think it is, and I, I, in some ways, economics may be changing, but it may just be that I talk to the wrong economists when yeah, I think I that. I, I, it's obviously, it's sour grapes for me as a failed economist to talk about this, but. <laughs> it's the but, world's smallest violin. But, for those of you listening at home and not watching the YouTube video yeah. version of this, I am playing the world's smallest violin between making, my index and thumb. Really, Making a really obscene Italian gesture. It could be, yeah. Or, yeah, who knows what I've said, yeah. Th uh, th thanks for that. Um, 
of course, I'm going to say economics should be different and it should be more like what I want. <laughs> but I just got back from three weeks at the beach. Every year we spend three weeks at the beach on vacation. And one of the highlights of that is me re-listening to you and Dan Klein talk about <laughs> in six episodes and yeah. talking about the theory of moral sentiments. And Dan makes a really great point there that there was an article a, a few years ago in one of the AER journals saying, you know, isn't it interesting that Adam Smith discovered all this stuff about um, behavioral economics? And, and Dan says, yes, it's interesting. We made a start and then we switched off into doing something else. Let's get back on the main road. Yeah. So at least Dan and I both think that there's three of us. Oh, there, there, there's there's a hundred of us, Yeah, but we shouldn't all go to the AEA meetings at the same time because that's really all the – most people in economics think of economics as being a largely positive scientific approach to – Positive studying. meaning how the world works, not how it should work. More than that, it is a set of questions that have answers, and they have answers in the optimization sense. And so yeah. the, it could be Robinson Crusoe or it could be an individual in a society, but it, these are well-defined problems. And one of the things that I admired James Buchanan for saying was that he mimicked Bombeverk's claim that the way to judge an economics textbook was how many pages before it first talked about horse trading and exchange and the indeterminacy of markets – because notice that for you and I to agree on a price, we have to disagree about value. The only way you and I can agree on a price is if we disagree about the value. Because the price we agree on is above the one where I'm willing to sell and below the one where you're willing to buy. So we have to disagree about that. Whereas if you're just using calculus, we're all agreeing on everything. And so the social problem is how to choose a set of institutions that allow us to reconcile the conflicting plans and purposes of all these myriad people in society. And that's what Adam Smith was constructing a system of, a system of propriety that does that not just in the market, but in the larger setting. And so that's a long answer to your question. I'm interested in social systems that reconcile the conflicting plans and purposes. And I want to say, as a classical liberal, we have to start from the point where all these, these conflicting plans and purposes, because I'm a subjectivist, they're allowed to have those. We can't solve it by saying, well, no, no, you all have to want the same thing. So the, this is in many ways the same problem that Aristotle was working on. We have systems of institutions. And so the, the reason why I'm interested in institutions and constitutions and why I was drawn to public choice is precisely that discovery of the importance of these timeless questions. So I, I have heard people say, because we in the PPE program that I direct, and I would politics, say philosophy, philosophy politics, and economics. Yeah. There's 50 new PPE programs around the United States. So there is a move for this. Students want it if faculty will just offer it. So if it is possible, students want it. The, the difficulty that we have is that many classes are designed around what faculty want to teach, not what students want to take. So if you put the hay out there, the goats will eat it. So we PPE is a way of returning classical liberalism and the, these sort of great questions to the academy, and it's growing very quickly. The thing is, it's hard to get people who actually want to teach it because it requires a lot of extra preparation. But when it comes to this, this difficulty of how to think about the way societies work, the fact that these great questions that have been with us for a very long time are a way of thinking about what many of the wrong answers are. And I'm not sure that if you take the view that these are a set of skills that we're teaching people, that that's what we can accomplish with online courses. Yeah, well, that's a nice bring back to the topic at hand. I, I've become increasingly interested in this question of whether the faux precision, the fake precision of economic theory and predicting, say, what prices should be or in measuring social welfare or individual well-being, uh, I think it's um, – I think it distorts how we see the human enterprise. Uh, I don't know how badly it distorts – 
outside people's perception. I think it distorts our perception as economists. Uh, but um, it's just something I'm thinking about. I think it's a really interesting question of how the mathematization, the this fake precision of away from Adam Smith and towards Paul Samuelson to take the 1948 version where it really started to, to grow in a particular direction, what that's done to the way we conceive of, of well-being. Um, I want to now return to your essay, actually. That's all fascinating. Uh, you have a, uh, you break down the universe. We're going to, I want to get to this unbundling question because I have some ideas that want to bounce off you, but the, you allow us to think about the unbundling by suggesting there are really four buildings on campus that capture different aspects of college life. Uh, talk about those and, um, and then we'll, we'll talk about, you know, how, whether they could be unbundled or not. Well, I'm, I'm partly trying to have fun in the essay, so I use a metonymy, and we're using it's a really fancy word. I had to look it up. Metonymy. Well, then let raise us, your hand. Raise your hand out there if you know metonymy. Let us provide. That's part this, of your. That's part of your that that liberal arts education you got. We will provide this service <laughs> to because all you're, all of you are used to metonymies because you've watched the news or read something where it said today the Kremlin said well the Kremlin's a building it didn't say anything yeah. or according to the White House well actually the White House is just a bricks and mortar structure so universities have four bricks and mortar structures that are representative of the thing that goes on inside them and it's a useful device yeah it's cool. And, well, there's probably five because you could say classrooms. And the, so the, I'm actually, I'm trolling. I have a sixth one for you. Keep going. Well, they're, 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 if I'm trolling because I'm not including classrooms. I'm yeah. conceding that it is possible to offer classes online. Even if you believe that that's true, and it obviously is as an existence proof, then what are the other things? And the, the first one and the one that online education is most likely to subvert is the clock tower. And the clock tower or the bell tower, but usually the bells ring on an hour at, at UNC, for example, the clock tower is a kind of tyranny because it says we are going to dictate to you that learning can take place on Tuesdays and Thursdays between 11 and 12.15. And otherwise, I mean, there's homework, but maybe you do that, maybe you don't. You do some reading the night before. You stay up all night the night before a test. All of these things are scheduled, and there's just nothing reasonable about that. If you look at the great works from the past, work that actually matters, people didn't say, all right, I'm going to work at this one brief time. They think about it all the time. They're obsessed with it. So education should mean that this is something that occupies your mind, not something that occupies your time. Nonetheless, the clock tower is a really important device for reducing the transactions cost of accomplishing these other things. And in the in the paper, I do also give the example, and you already mentioned it, that there's a shared experience of even of something that's pre-recorded. So many people, the, my wife and I like to go to movies. Now, we watch things on Netflix, and like I said, we watch Hamilton, but we'll go to a movie pay quite a bit of money for the shared experience of watching something with a bunch of other people, feeling them around us, hearing their gasps of horror or their laughter. So the, 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 the fact that it's shared, even if we're watching something that's canned and pre-recorded, still requires time. And we don't think of that as being tyrannical. If the movie were to start whenever you get there, that's television. You know, I, I'm, I'm able or to- Or talk. Econ talk, and one of the great things about econ talk is that it does overcome that tyranny of the clock. You listen whenever you want. Listen and slow it down. Go back. Start over. The, all of those things are so. The, the question is: Can we can we get rid of some of the tyranny of the clock tower while preserving the scheduled shared experience that I think is actually indispensable? So, okay, so that's number one. Number two, build, that, build, building number two is pretty easily said. Um, it happens that I'm a UNC basketball fan, but at Duke, there's this little crappy high school gym uh, called Cameron Indoor Stadium where Duke clearly cheats. I, I just, I can't stand the fact that Duke cheats so badly by having this tiny stadium that gives them such a big home court advantage. That little temple 
and maybe it's a football stadium, maybe it's Cameron Indoor Stadium, is a sense of shared experience that touches something very deep in the human psyche. And many people are UNC fans that didn't go to UNC. Many people are Michigan or Ohio State fans that didn't go there. So the, the sense of tribalism that we have, particularly if it's connected with the shared experience of also going to class or eating in the same eating hall. So we're part of big tribes and having athletics and this, it's not clear that this is going to happen, although maybe it'll happen on television. Um, but the, the, the big 100,000 people that are watching an Ohio State game, that may change. But that, the, one of the things that universities offer is the, the sports stadium, the, the, where we're able to, op- to serve people's sense of tribalism. You call it the stadium, just to make it clear. Uh, you said some of the fans didn't even go there. I was going to add, and some of the players didn't go yeah. there either in, yeah. in any effective sense, but at some other institutions perhaps. But well, I but do that, think that's exploitative. It, it's of amazing. course, it's horrible. So the, it, in Chile, as you know, the universities have soccer teams. They have yep, football talked teams. about it many times. Yeah. But they're they're not students. They abandoned nope. the pretense. Just the name they, of it. Yep. They just. But but it's still an important it. part of a bricks and mortar universe. So they unbundled it. They said we can do better and not exploit students. We'll just hire a football team. Well, you call it a uh, uh, tribalism. I I think of it as uh, something of a shrine. You can think of it as a cathedral, really, uh, as a place for that shared, transcendent feeling that. You know, my foot, my sports team uh, that I'm enjoying in the presence of 100,000 other people is a special experience. So that's yeah. no, that's two. No, three. I have to object. Dick Vitale sometimes calls Cameron Indoor Stadium a cathedral of vast basketball, and it makes me want to vomit. Yeah, well. So, I, I, so yeah. The, I'm going to stick with stadium. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, number three, Munger. The, 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 the third is the maybe it's the fraternity house, the sorority house, maybe it's the student union, uh, but un- universities provide a really great assortative mating service of the sort that Charles Murray talks about, because all of you have pretty similar interests, education level, expected income level. And so you've gotten rid of a bunch of problems of assortative mating. You don't even really notice. And in addition to assortative mating, you make connections with other people that may very well later serve you in business or for the rest of your life. Those sorts of connections. Finally, small groups give you leadership opportunities. And it's not, that's not to say that the person who is the president of their fraternity or president of some social club is good at it. They're terrible. But you get the experience of having to deal with people who are not like you, who you benefit from working with. And then the, the fourth uh, building is the one that's closest in some ways to Brian Kaplan's claim, and that's the admissions office. So the admissions office, it is useful to have a signal that someone else went to great lengths to investigate in a very difficult rent-seeking process and you want. So if, if all I know is that you were admitted to Harvard, then it might be that you made baskets, you wove baskets for four years, but you got admitted to Harvard, you must have something special. And so as a result, the admissions office is giving this triple A certification that you're better than other people along the dimensions that we use to decide these things. Yeah, the other part... The difficulty is that you can game those things, and unsurprisingly, as the thing has become more valuable, the ability of wealthy people to game them has increased, and the disparities have gotten larger. The the BA gap has gotten larger, and the the wealthy people are going to get wealthier because it's hard to imagine a system based essentially on power is going to protect the weak. Yeah, I I, I don't – you know, the the problem I've always had with the – I'm more sympathetic to the signaling argument today than I was 40, 30, 20 years ago. But the problem is, is it's a very expensive signal. And you talked, you alluded to that earlier. You'd think we could develop a better, you, you said it proves that someone has been able to do X, Y, Z. Well, X, Y, Z is take standardized tests, uh, do extracurricular activities, 
pretend to volunteer to help the poor in you know, this poor country, whatever it is, or look like they care, uh, be the nth vice president of the chess club, <laughs> so they can put vice president of the chess club on their resume. So a lot of those things are empty um, or, or just pure signals. You'd think there'd be some ways that would be cheaper, easier, maybe. I, I know part of the value of signaling is that they're they're hard. Um, but a lot of what they're they're measuring is zeal rather than or your parents' zeal. Uh, but but let's put that to the side. You, you can react to that if you want. But I, I, I want to talk about the unbundling thing. You'd think this would be a time, especially in the, in the aftermath of the pandemic, when a lot of people are wondering about whether the tuition's worth it, where people could offer some institutional alternatives to to university life that would capture some of these. Not all of them. I agree that it's hard to do it a la carte. That's really the point of your essay is if you say, well, I want to take one of these and, and create a substitute. To create four is, is, is quite difficult. But again, the current bundled options, very expensive. There's a lot of social uh, pressure. Like I thought about my kids not going to college uh, and, because I think a lot of the measured benefits of college are because two different different types of people go. And so it's not obvious to me that if you don't go, you're not going to do well. I think you could do very well in life having some other experiences. But the, the, the uncertainty about that and the social pressure to just do the normal thing that everybody else is doing, it's quite high. And I, I see this moment as a chance to, to create some, reduce those costs and maybe create some options that are more attractive that could do other things. So first explain why you think the unbundling is not going to happen. And then maybe we'll talk about why. Maybe it will anyway. There was, um, you did an econ talk not long ago uh, in which the guest made a distinction that I thought was really interesting. There, part of it depends on the, the primary mode of production. If the primary mode of production is knowing how to do things helps you, then it's as if you're producing forklifts. And so knowing how to use a forklift means that as many people as we can train to make a forklift, that produces value. But there are some circumstances where what's valuable is what you can produce over a microphone. And producing it over a microphone means that the two or three best people at using that microphone take all of it. So you have a kind of winner-take-all game. And so the difficulty with universities is the conflict between that forklift and the microphone. So the reason why we have these signals that I, I, in some ways I'm more skeptical even than you, the reason we have these signals is that we're testing for people's willingness and capacity to misrepresent their own abilities. We're actually rewarding that. So this is an extremely pathological kind of system. We're, we're not admitting people for accomplishments. We're admitting people for being able to fabricate accomplishments. And that's actually going to benefit them in the pathological Twitter, Facebook world of social media. So I worry that this system now is in a very unvirtuous kind of spiral. And breaking out of that to some extent, you you said, well, why can't we come up with a better system? Most systems are really finely calibrated to produce the conditions that gave rise to them. There's no we, as you know very well. So the reason why the system does what it does is that this serves people who are trying to enter the current system, and it means that universities are able to collect a lot of revenue from it. So I'm hoping, I actually have some hope that this is going to be like Mansur Olson's idea in The Rise and Decline of Nations, where this is going to be so catastrophic that universities will break and then rise from the ashes and form something better. That's very well said. I, I, I think the question is a lot of the, the four buildings that you talked about, a lot of them, there's only four of them. Uh, so, so let's see, well, let's take them, uh, a, one of them. Let's take the, you call it the uh, student union, but I was going to call it the, the fraternity or the sorority, but sure. beat me to it. Well, uh, it, it was suggested to me that I not call it that. So I was, I get I was, it. I was trying to I be more it. general. I get it. We'll call it social life on campus. There are other things we could call it that would be <laughs> less attractive, but let's call it social life on campus. The, the, I w- this would include partying. It would include networking. Let me just point out, I just saw 
really nice uh, chart from Benedict Evans, uh, past Econ Talk guest. Twenty uh, percent, I think it was two thousand and five. Twenty percent of uh, people met their uh, partner, their significant other. I don't know if this include what this what's in the denominator, whether it's marriages or, or I don't know what it includes, but. 20%, whatever the definition is, assuming it stayed the same, 20% had met them online. Uh, that number today, or I think the latest data in that chart was 2017, uh, it's 40%. So software is eating the world. Software is performing that assortative mating function that you talked about, the ability to help people find each other. College campus is an incredibly expensive way to find somebody who's like you. Uh, uh, online dating works a lot better. Uh, at a low, much low, meaning at a much lower cost. It might not work better. But you're, it, comparing but the, you're comparing the average and the margin. So if I want someone who's really, really like me, if I can do it at Harvard or Princeton, yes, that's expensive. But the, at the very top echelon of society, it's worth it to find someone who has a similar background. Now, the average of 40%, yes, that's true. For the hoi polloi, for me, sure, that's great. But for the for the top echelons, they're looking for something better than online dating. I'm not sure. I think that's changing, and I think uh, I think online quote online dating, whatever we call it, has gotten uh, is going to get already is and is going to get more sophisticated. So let's pretend we for a moment we can unbundle that that part of it because um, there's more than dating. There's also just social connections and so yeah. on. So that's very obviously that's very important as well. Um, the Clock tower, the synchronization of the shared experience, you can do that online. It's not as good. Parts of it are pretty good, by the way. Parts of it are not. I've been impressed by the ability of, of Zoom, and we're, of course, in a very primitive stage right now, but Zoom's ability to have breakout rooms and to have yep. smaller conversations works, and the, the teacher can sit in on those if you haven't been part of that, listeners. It's really quite, quite impressive. Um, the stadium... That's. Uh, can you find a group of a place where you and other twenty somethings? Well, the concert, the concert does that now to some extent. Uh, obviously, it doesn't do it for your socioeconomic group exclusively, although it kind of can. Um, and that leaves us with um, the, admissions the admissions office, office which is kind of the, maybe the whole thing for Brian Kaplan for sure. Um, so, if we back off from this way of thinking about it one at a time and say, well. I'm going to create a different thing. I'm going to let's. We're going to call it. Uh, I'm going to call. Give me a name. You, you, you'll tell me the name. Here's what this experience is. You're 18 years old. You're not coming to a campus. You're going to move to a city. You're going to move to New York. Move to Chicago. Move to LA. Move to New Orleans. Move to Charlotte, Atlanta, wherever. And you're going to have a job. In that job, we'll help you find it. By the way, because we're going to. We're going to be selective about who gets to be in our, quote, college, alternative college. Uh, we're going to help you find that job. And it might go 9 to 1, 8 to 12. And in the afternoon, you're going to do online learning. And at night, you're going to attend Hamilton Live. You're going to go to the symphony. You're going to go to the, the beach with, with, a, with 18 to 20, maybe 30 of your buddies uh, for the, uh, the student union. There's going to be no campus. So we're going to save all that cost. The, the, the actual classes are going to be cheap because they're going to be delivered by the best online professors. Isn't this a moment where that model could thrive? Isn't this an entrepreneurial opportunity? Not for me, not maybe not for you, but for someone out there listening to create a signaling, rent-seeking, assortative mating experience that where the classroom is part of it, but it's not we don't pretend it's the central part because it's not the central part anymore anyway. In talking to John Cochran in 2014, you actually raised a question where you said there seems like an entrepreneur, you almost verbatim the question you just asked, except not going to places, but shouldn't, don't we expect some entrepreneur to create a degree program where you have these really excellent lecturers and you, there's someone in the room to curate the discussion. But so we, we have this video and then we have someone who helps you work through the problems. Because I don't need John Cochran to help me work through some calculus problems. I have John Cochran to teach me the principles and then you have someone to work through the problem with you in a group of eight or ten. 
And John might not be very good at that, by the way. I'm, I'm not saying anything about him personally, but in general, a person who can deliver a dazzling, coherent lecture about uh, a sophisticated subject is not necessarily the best discussion leader, and that person could specialize, probably less expensive. And the, the, the opportunity cost of having him work with eight or ten people, even yeah. if he were really good at it, yeah, the problem is comparative it. advantage. Correct. That That's one of the reasons that universities are expensive is that we don't have the economies of scale that come from a dazzling lecture where you've really thought about how to present this. And you really get the sense. I mean, you the, the, the camera angles, the way that things edit keeps your interest. The graphics teach you a lot. You have embedded mid-course. Uh, questions that help you remember it. So you're getting constant feedback. Um, and then you work on the problems in a classroom setting with a different person who is specialized in that. Why is it that we don't see that? And the one possibility is that the difficulty of setting that up and getting people to recognize that it actually is a substitute. Because we're right. pretty conservative when it comes yeah. to, it never occurred Our children. To it, our children's future. Yeah, so the, small this, thing. This is something, you know, they're 10 or 12 years old. You're already saying, well, what college would you like to go to? You go around and visit so that they get an idea of the physical. It, it's unlikely that people are going to say, we're going to take a flyer. That sounds like that might work because some of those videos were really good. And so, the, but you have a more hybrid form now where you're you're sending people in in some ways i guess i would say that that st john's has some elements of that because you're 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 in a small setting but you're it, it's in annapolis or in santa fe your santa fe has a bunch of opera and so a, a bunch of the students at the Sant, at the st john's that's in santa fe they'll go and get cultural experiences also yeah so I, I'm imagining this writ much larger than that. Of course, there's going to be work experience. There's uh, social interaction that would be guided. It's not just a, a frat party it would, or a sorority party. It would also be, uh, you know, things beyond a great seminar. I, I'm not sure what they are. You'd have to think of them. But I think your point about the, the risk involved for parents is, is real. I think somebody with a very good brand name would have to start that. I'm not yeah. sure what the nature of that brand name would be. You know, is it well? But the, the again, the difference between average and marginal. Peter Thiel and some others have said, yeah. just drop out when you're a yeah. sophomore. And the they have a point that when you think of the opportunity cost of tuition and years in school compared to, because if you say, oh, you don't go to college, yes, but what are you going to do with those years instead? What are you going to do with that right. money? Instead? That's the challenge. Yeah. If you take, if you had a better way of investing that time and money, it might very well produce something else. So the, the, all I wanted to argue in my essay is I think that there is some kernel of value to bundling these things together. I also think that some universities do a pretty poor job of bundling them already. And it's likely that the system of universities is going to shrink. Yeah. Or at least offer things in a different way. And when you say work part-time, European universities, even European high schools, have apprenticeship relationships where people get a lot of experience after two or three years of college. They're working most of the time. That Some American universities try to put that together, but mostly we want people on campus. Yeah, and, and what – go ahead. We're in rural places. We're not set up to do this. So your example would have to be in New York or Chicago or San Francisco. It would have to be in a large city. So the, the bucolic setting that I was in in Davidson, where I would walk around, it's far from any kind of city, that was an important part of liberal arts for me. That may be a luxury that many people can no longer afford, and we're making a mistake by telling them that they should try. There's a bunch of small liberal arts college that, colleges that I expect are going to disappear. That it, the, the tuition is just too much for the amount of value that it creates. And you can object, well, wait, it's not about creating value. Sure it is if the alternatives get better. Yeah, I agree with that. This week's Econ Talk coincidentally or not, is Robert Lerman talking about apprenticeships. One of the stranger things about so-called professional training in the American university system is that you're taught in the theory of the activity, not the, the actual act of it. So an education degree doesn't teach you how to be a teacher. It teaches you theories of education mm -hmm. 
accounting professors want to teach about theories of accounting. They're not so concerned with you being a great accountant. And one of the advantages of that more practical side, if that's what you are looking for, is you can actually figure out if you're going to like it or not. Those other, the way we do it now, the way we teach academic disciplines, you don't have any idea what it's like to practice the act. The only thing you're learning about is, is, is what, how it's like to teach it, which is really weird. I, I'm in a political science department. And as far, <laughs> as far as I know, I am the only person in my political science department that has run for office. I ran for governor in 2008. I'm actually running. Did you North, win? I, I, I came in third. Okay. That's good. That's good. I got it's a bronze medal. Yeah. I, it, if, if there had been many candidates, yes, that would be more of an accomplishment. I, <laughs> I, I came in last on merit, but uh, I, I was in four televised debates. I have some idea what it's like to do radio interviews where the, they're not that interested. You get callers there. So the, and that's, that is considered to be a sort of strange curiosity. Why would a political science professor yeah. ever have run for office? That's just well, weird. weird. Yeah. But that must have been a – did it change your research in any way? It certainly changed my teaching. Um, I'm – the way that I think about how – because usually the theory is when you teach spatial theory, you talk about people's positions on issues and their proximities to different candidates and their uncertainty that comes about as a result of campaign messages. <laughs> <laughs> that has nothing to do – so the the – Maybe that's a possibility is there – we have created a set of guilds, and the way that access to the guild is controlled is by publishing largely meaningless articles in largely unread journals. Yeah. <laughs> and that is a way – it's true of showing commitment because there's no other self-interested reason to do this. This is really boring. You are capable <laughs> – of hard work and compliance in a completely pointless exercise, which reminds me actually of the origins of the civil service in China. The civil service exam in 1500 BC in China was to be able to reproduce from memory in beautiful calligraphy, classical Chinese poems, <laughs> which had nothing to do with the job. But since you were going to be far from the emperor, yeah. That meant that you were compliant and willing to do a pointless task at great length. <laughs> and so the competition for these jobs was really high, but it's in your self-interest to be able to get a high-paying job with no oversight. Yeah. So you had to be able to do calligraphy. I worry that an article in Economic Inquiry is not so different. My guest today has been Mike Bunger. Mike, thanks for being part of EconTalk. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Russ. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.